Well, sometimes the arrival of someone changes everything. Uh, I remember when Catherine and I were courting, I was living in Leeton, Catherine was down in Geelong, and Catherine was coming up to visit, and I woke up early that morning buzzing with excitement. Every car that went past was potentially Catherine's car. So every car that I heard, I'd get up, look out the window. Nope, not her yet. My day couldn't really start until Catherine had arrived. Everything that day was about Catherine coming. But sometimes uh, a person's arrival doesn't just change a day, it can change your life. Uh, Like the time when Catherine arrived on our wedding day. Now, my life's never been the same since. (laughs) In a good way. Uh, The bit of Luke 1 that we're up to this morning is all about the arrival of God's King. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come and it changes everything. Or at least it should. Because he's the world's true and eternal ruler. The reality of our lives is that Jesus is in charge. And so life only makes sense if we're serving him as our Lord. The king has come. Nothing should be the same. Everything's changed. Let's see how Luke pans this out for us. How Luke tells us of the coming of the king. Verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And personally, I don't blame her. For wondering what kind of... I mean, you've got the angel Gabriel suddenly burst in. He's come with a message from God himself. What kind of greeting is this? We just have to keep reading. Verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And that's a remarkable greeting, isn't it? At so many levels. I mean, imagine being told, you're going to have a baby, he'll be a boy, and your son will have a kingdom that'll never end. God himself will give him his throne and your son will never leave it. I think I'd be happy enough being told that my baby's going to have ten toes and ten fingers, a healthy bub. But this greeting from Gabriel, it's momentous. He's talking about the coming of the Son of God. And it's worth our while to pick our way through it slowly, what Gabriel had to say. So back up to verse 32. Gabriel told Mary that her son was to be named Jesus. And verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. We'll stop there first. Jesus is going to be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, you may or may not know that there's actually lots of sons of God in the Bible. So we've got a few options to choose from. Uh, For example, Luke is going to call Adam the Son of God in chapter 3. Israel, the nation, is called the Son of God in books like Exodus and Hosea. And the kings of Israel and Judah were known as sons of God as well. So which one is it for Jesus to be the son of God? Is he A, like Adam, or B, somehow like the nation of Israel, or C, is he the new king of Israel? Well, the rest of verse 32 makes it clear for us. It's C, 
Jesus is the son of God in that he's the new king of Israel. Verse 32 again. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him his throne, give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is to be the new king of Israel. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob. It's just another way of saying Israel. He's going to reign forever. His kingdom will never end, and he'll be given the throne of his father David. Now, it's worth stopping there as well. Because that's another really significant thing to take notice of. Gabriel saying that God will give him the throne of his father David. That's meant to send off alarm bells ringing in our ears. A little bit like when uh, someone says something and it makes you remember something really significant. Say you're at a party and uh, someone mentions turning the taps off and all of a sudden you remember you forgot to turn the watering system off at your house. This mention of Jesus being given the throne, it's, it's like that. God has made some really significant promises to King David. We read them earlier. And when Gabriel mentions the throne of David, we're meant to remember those promises. Have a look at this. It's going to come up on the screen for you. If you could just kill the front lights for me, please, Doug. Thanks. Up on the screen is going to come a, the, a table of the promise of God that he made to David compared with Gabriel's words to Mary. On the left... Hang on. Yes, is what God promised King David. Right, what Gabriel said to Mary. Here we go. God promised David that his name would be great, and Gabriel said that Jesus would be great. God promised David that he would establish the throne of his kingdom, and Gabriel said that Jesus would have the throne of his father David. God promised that David's son would be God's son. Gabriel said that Jesus would be called the son of the Most High. And God promised that David's house and his kingdom would endure forever. Gabriel said that Jesus would reign over the house of Jacob forever. Jesus is the promised son of David, the promised king of Israel, the final and true son of God. Now, as you can imagine, when God first gave this promise to David, there was lots of excitement. And literally for hundreds of years afterwards, nearly every single prophet spoke of this coming king. And through the prophets, God kept expanding his promise so that this king would rule not just over Israel, but rule the entire world, subduing all his enemies and bringing people from all nations to join in to the people of God. So for Jesus to be heralded by Gabriel to be the promised son of God, the promised king of Israel, to sit on the throne of David, Gabriel is announcing Jesus to be the king of the world. Now down through history there's been lots of contenders for king of the world. You've got Alexander the Great, you've got the Roman Caesars, you've got the emperors of China, but none of them actually ruled the entire world, did they? And even what they did rule over, they died and then had to hand it over to their successor. And eventually their empires crumbled, world leaders come and go, world superpowers come and go. But Jesus really is the king of the entire world. He died for sin, God raised him from the dead, and so he's conquered not just puny nations like Rome or Persia or the USA or China, he's conquered death itself and sin and hell. 
And he's not like the emperors or the presidents. He doesn't come and go with the next coup or the next election. Or even when he dies, he was resurrected from the dead, never to die again. He is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over all creation. This is what is real. The reality that we live in is that Jesus Christ is the king over the entire world. Now, if you were living back in the time of uh, the Roman Caesars and you were living in Rome, you couldn't just pretend that Caesar wasn't really the emperor. You couldn't live in Rome and act as if Caesar was a nobody. The Caesars had real authority. Being emperor came with clout. Uh, They could throw pretenders to the lions. The reality of living in Rome was that Caesar was in charge. And the reality of living in this world is that Jesus Christ is in charge, whether we like it or not. The Lord Jesus has real authority. He is right now at his father's side orchestrating history so that exactly what he wants to happen, it happens. Nothing occurring apart from his command. Uh, Everything going according to his plan. And on the day he returns, as we thought about last week, all his enemies will be crushed. We can pretend now for a little while that Jesus isn't in charge. But on the day he returns, all that pretense will be over. The Bible pictures Christ's enemies screaming that mountains would fall on them instead of facing the Lord Jesus in his power. We are talking absolute authority. We're talking Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And he's in charge now. That's the reality we live in. To live as if he isn't in charge doesn't make sense because he is. The Lord Jesus is king over all. And it changes everything. But before we think about what this looks like, Luke moves us on to let us know how all this will happen. So from verse 34, we move from what will happen to how it will happen. Verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. After all the wonder and the hype of what Gabriel says, Mary replies with a simple question, how will this be? She's still a virgin. How can she have the child to be the king? The answer comes, verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Now there's several things to note here. Uh, The first is we need to acknowledge up front that we're talking about something rather unusual. And you might be sitting there thinking this is just all a bit too much. You can't be expected to believe this rubbish. Virgins don't give birth. Or at least they didn't used to. Uh, In our day and age, we have the technology for a woman to become pregnant without having sex. So if you are sitting there thinking that this is just ridiculous, please realise that you're saying that there's things we can do that God himself can't, as if we're more powerful or clever than God himself. Second thing to note about all this is... What does the rest of the New Testament make of the virgin birth? The answer is nothing. Now, some say that since Jesus was born of a virgin, that proves that Jesus was God, when in actual fact the New Testament nowhere makes that claim. 
Uh, I mean, even here in verse 35, the closest we get is Jesus being called the Son of God. But being called the Son of God isn't saying that Jesus is God. Uh, We've already seen in this context, Jesus being called the Son of God is to say he's the King. And the rest of the New Testament makes no mention of Jesus being born of a virgin, let alone his virgin birth proving his divinity. It, It just simply makes nothing of it. The Roman Catholic Church, on the other hand, does make something of it. In fact, they make a lot of it. Uh, they've elevated Mary to near godlike status. Her being the mother of Jesus, they've created a fantastic tradition of Mary never having had sex, even after Jesus was born and despite being Joseph's uh, wife and despite the New Testament telling us of her other children. The Catholic Church also claims that Mary was sinless, so she has no need of a saviour. In fact, they even give Mary the title of co-redeemer with Christ so that somehow she's our saviour as well as Jesus being our saviour. And it all stems from Mary being the virgin mother of Jesus. When the New Testament simply makes nothing of it. Mary's not special. Now, it's true, Gabriel does say that she's highly favoured and she's blessed, but it's not because of anything intrinsic to Mary, it's because she was chosen to do something special. Mary was a sinner just like the rest of us. She does not, she cannot save us. It's only the Lord Jesus that can. So what are we to make of these verses? Well, the simple emphasis of these verses is that all of this will happen by the power of God. He will do it. Look at it again, verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So it's going to happen by the Spirit of God. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It'll happen by the power of God. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. See, the emphasis is that God's going to do this. He will achieve it. Nothing's impossible for him. The answer to Mary's question, how can this be, is that God will do it. By his power, by his spirit, God will bring this about. And most importantly, remember what it is that God will bring about. It's the coming of the King, the one to rule on David's throne forever. The Lord Jesus Christ was born, he grew up, he died for sin, was raised to life, is now the one who lives forever as the ruler of all. This is momentous news, staggering news. The King of the entire world has arrived. And we should respond to this momentous news the way Mary did in verse 38. Confronted with the staggering news of her impending pregnancy and birth of the coming Son of God, Mary simply said, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Gabriel is just giving her an astonishing new reality with which to understand her world. Her new reality is that she was going to give birth to the coming Son of God and she just accepted that reality and ran with it. I am the Lord's servant. And we do well to be like her, to hear the astonishing reality of our lives that we're living in a world ruled by King Jesus and we should just accept that reality and run with it. Because Jesus is the King of all the world. That's what's true. That's what's real. And so as Mary said, I am the Lord's servant, we should say, we are the king's servants. 
And this just brings so much clarity to our lives. It changes the way we see everything. Because Jesus being king means that in all of life there's basically two things we're trying to do. We're either trying to live as servants of the king or we're trying to help others to live as servants of the king. Because Jesus is king. That's what's real. It's why coming along to things like our church meetings or growth groups or our youth group, that's why they're so important. Because getting together with God's people to hear the word of God, that's going to encourage me to continue to serve the Lord Jesus and I can help others to serve Christ as well. So next time you feel the urge to take it easy and to skip meeting with God's people, remember that you're flying in the face of what's real. Jesus Christ is king. And to act as if being helped to serve him and helping others to serve him isn't all that important. That's just silly because Jesus Christ is king. And so being encouraged to serve the Lord Jesus and helping others to honour Christ as king, that's the most important thing you can do. Knowing Jesus as our Lord and our king also means we can now cut through all the rubbish that the world tries to sell us. Because through advertising, we're constantly being told that what we need is the more expensive things and we need more money, we need the bigger house, we need the bigger car, we need the newest computer and we couldn't possibly be satisfied without them. It's rubbish. What's true is that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and in him we'll find satisfaction. So it doesn't matter what car you've got or what house you've got or what possessions you have. What matters is, are you using them to serve Christ as king. And knowing the true king also brings us great clarity when thinking about our money. If Jesus is king, then the most important thing we can do with our money is to seek his kingdom with it. And so the first thing we should do when we do our budgets is to work out how much money can we give away to promote the cause of Christ. The first thing we do is not work out what new gadgets are we going to buy this year or what's the most expensive house I can buy because then we'll just have a pittance left over to seek first the kingdom of God. And knowing Jesus, our eternal king, also means we can die well because we know that he's already risen from the dead. He's secured for all eternity our salvation. Eternal life is guaranteed. It is safe and secure. It is untouchable. And that means, knowing Jesus our King, we can die well. Look, I've just chosen a few examples, but what I'm hoping to help you see is just to get a bit of a taste as to how the reality of the arrival of King Jesus, the reality of his rule over us right now, it changes everything. It brings great clarity. If something helps you or others to serve Jesus as king, then go for it. But if it doesn't, run a mile. Because the king, the son of God, he's arrived. He's risen from the dead. He rules now and will do so forever. That changes everything. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, please give us humility before you and your Son that we would acknowledge him as our Lord and our King and trembling before his throne we would come before you confident 
in the mercy and forgiveness we find in him. And Father, help us to understand this reality that Jesus Christ is not just our Lord, not just our King, but he is the King. And so that we would live our lives seeking to serve him as our King and to help others to do the same. Father, that they too might know the wonder of knowing Jesus as the Christ and King and Lord of all. And we pray it in his name. Amen.